0: Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Diller Teen Tikkun Olam Awards. Help shine a light on the next generation of inspiring young Jewish leaders. Each year, the Diller Teen Tikkun Olam Awards recognize 15 extraordinary Jewish teenagers from across the United States with an award of $36,000 to honor their initiatives to help change the world. You can nominate a teen today or they can apply directly by January 7th. Visit www.dillerteenawards.org unbound to learn more. That's www.dillerteenawards.org unbound. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 299, Becoming a Golem. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson.
1: And I'm Lex Rothberg.
0: And as we've been talking about since the new year... This year is a Shemitah year. It's the year in the seven-year cycle of years where there's a lot of traditional material about all kinds of things to rest the land in different ways, and also to release debts. We had a series of episodes introducing this idea a few months ago, And we told you then that we're going to have an episode exploring some of the ideas that flow from Shemitah every month or so on the podcast. And today is one of those episodes, but in a really interesting way. It involves golems. The golem is a figure from Jewish folklore, which is essentially a humanoid figure made out of clay through which some practitioners, and the Maharal of Prague was one of them, can breathe the breath of life into this inanimate figure made of clay and turn it animate. And the golem has traditionally been imagined as a powerful figure who would be given life in this way, perhaps to save a Jewish community that was under threat, as the Jewish community of Prague was in the late 16th century in this story of the golem of Prague. And our guest today, Julie Weitz, is also very fascinated by the idea of a golem, and she's addressing it in a new way. She is a performance artist, and her approach to exploring this idea of the golem is to herself become the golem and to be photographed and to create films, acting out this role of the protector in ways that may be profoundly new in the storytelling of the golem. In particular, she has been exploring this idea of the golem as a protector of the environment, as we'll discuss. That's the connection to Shmita, or at least one of the connections to Shmita. You can see Julie White's embodiment of the golem in all kinds of different contexts at her website, which is Julie Whites, That's J-U-L-I-E-W-E-I-T-Z dot And you can also see it at the Contemporary Jewish Museum's website, which is thecjm.org. The exhibition of Julie Weitz's Golem work, which is on exhibit right now at the Contemporary Jewish Museum, is a piece called My Golem as a Wildland Firefighter, which follows Julie Weitz's Golem as she trains to be a wildland firefighter in Tahoe National Forest, If you're listening to this episode around the time that it's released, you can attend a virtual panel discussion through the Contemporary Jewish Museum, where Julie Weitz will be moderating a panel that includes former Judaism Unbound guest Zella Golden of Wilderness Torah, which is entitled Holy Sparks, Cultural and Spiritual Fire, and it explores the question of how spiritual practices can transform our relationship to fire and land. That will take place on November 18th, 2021, at 5 p.m. Pacific Time, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and you can find it on the Contemporary Jewish Museum website, or get a direct link from the show notes on the Judaism Unbound page for this episode. Julie Weitz began embodying the golem in 2017. She identifies as a queer Ashkenazi video and performance artist whose interdisciplinary practice also includes writing, teaching, and activism. Since 2010, her focus has been the production of experimental videos. In addition to creating this performance art, Julie Weitz is also a teacher and has been a teacher at a number of universities and colleges. And she is also the founder of the Instagram account at Jews for Black Lives, which serves as an educational hub for the Jewish activist community in solidarity with Black Lives Matter. We are thrilled to explore this topic of the golem and its relevance to contemporary Jewish issues and in particular to the Shemitah. So Julie White, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It's so great to have you.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So I thought it would be good to get into this conversation by understanding basically for people who don't know at all what a golem is all about, what what it even is, but also to hear What is it about the idea of a golem that grabbed you initially and that you started to work with?
2: Yes. I like to start in explaining the golem in the most basic terms. Literally in Hebrew, it's translated as shapeless mass. So it's this like undescribed form. And it originates, it does occur once in the Torah, and then it's mostly spoken about in the Sefer Yetzirah, the book of creation, where a golem is imagined as a meditative technique to get closer to God. So it's described that you can take some soil, some earth, and you shape it into the vessel of a figure, and you recite certain Hebrew sequences, and the golem is animated. Through the Middle Ages into by the 19th century, the Yiddish folktales tell the golem as a kind of helper or companion or justice seeker, where the golem is created in moments of threat and violence to Jewish communities, and the golem becomes a kind of protector of those communities. But then there's also the part of the story where the golem supersedes their creator's control and gets smarter. And in this sense, the golem is also talked about in contemporary terms as a kind of AI. And that's sort of how I originally became interested in the golem is this way of thinking about how technology has this potential to supersede our control. Um, But of course, once I entered into the golem mythology, I saw all these different ways that it could be expanded upon. And then it was really in 2017, after the white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, that I started to feel like I needed to embody a golem as this sort of reaction to this insane rise of white supremacy and anti-Semitism. And at the same time, I had already been making really silly videos performing on Instagram as an artist. And uh so I started to film myself as a golem. And I basically would just sort of paint my face white. I put in these strange contact lenses. And I was riffing off of anti-Semitic tropes like the blood libel. Um, and the golem, my version of the golem would be attacking the white supremacists and racists and pretending that she was joyfully drinking their blood. Um, And they were really ridiculous 10 second, 15 second videos. I added plasmere to them and I posted them on Instagram. And from there, the project really took off in the sort of spirit of golem mythology. I allowed it to grow in a way that I couldn't plan ahead of time. Like it was like the way that people responded to this figure that I had created kept exponentially growing and becoming different iterations.
1: I don't want to skirt right past what you said about how in the mythology of the golem you take, you know, soil or earth whatever and then you speak words and then it's animated. That's how you talked about it. To me, people love talking about the golem and I've I've joked to a bunch of my friends like buy stocking golems, like golems are big right now. Get okay? golems, people are doing <laughs> creative wonderful things with golems. Um I'm like half joking. I think I mean that seriously. But like What's cool to me about golems is that it's actually like a love affair to words and language. Like you speak words and then this not living thing becomes a living thing. And then in the traditional idea of it, just to get nitty gritty, there's a word, you know, written on the forehead of the golem, emet, which means truth. And then when you erase the first letter, it becomes mate, which means death or dead and the golem dies because it's like this idea that like if the if the word is erased you're like literally erasing the entire thing and so for me there there's both the ways in which oh we've got this cool Jewish superhero protector thing that's the golem and it's kind of enshrined with this unique prism of Judaism whereby like words create reality and words are so important and so i thought that was really cool but you've you've taken the golem in your own directions in a bunch of creative ways that I have never seen before. And so I'd love to hear how you took this ancient story of, you know, a golem by this rabbi in Prague with the MN and whatever else, and you layered it onto very contemporary questions and issues in your art. So tell us more about what you've been doing with that.
2: To go back to that concept of the Hebrew letters animating the golem, I was so taken and frankly confused by this book of creation, this Kabbalistic text. And this idea that the Hebrew letters had so much power contained in them and that by sequencing them in certain ways, you could bring this other presence to life. Recently, I took a course with Victoria Hanna. I just want to name this because, you know, her work, she's this Israeli vocalist who has done all this research on The way the Hebrew letters embody are embodied in your mouth as a sound and then the way they inhabit space this potential, this sort of mystical potential for the Hebrew letters to bring about the act of creation and this idea that we actually have this mystical power within us through creation. And of course, as an artist, this metaphor is so resonant. Mm -hmm. Um, And then to that end, I just felt like, wow, I may have just found the perfect metaphor to speak to why being an artist is, is such a powerful experience. And I could use that container of the golem to address any issue that I was really concerned about. And, you know, as this project started at the rise of Trump's presidency, and there were so many things to respond to. And she gave me access to like the urgency and immediacy of a response, as opposed to the way that, you know, many artists work where it's like things take time and you have to build them up. And so by the time you get to a response, it's like already happened. It's so much happened in the course of Trump's presidency. So um, I started dressing up as Golem and showing up at protests and to give people a visual the, go- the way that I embody the golem is first, I paint my face white with white clay, because the metaphor is of clay. And the whiteness is important, too, because part of this project has been reckoning what it means to be a white Jew. So this sort of combination of Jewishness and whiteness. And then um, I write the, re- the Hebrew word emets, as you have mentioned, truth on my forehead to kind of bring her alive. And so in these various costumes, I started showing up to protest in support of immigrants' rights. And I had already been doing actions with Never Again Action, the progressive Jewish led organization that advocates to abolish ICE. When I showed up in this costume, immediately people were excited by her. She's just like this form of political theater, visual spectacle, brings more attention to the issue. And because she doesn't speak, I had this sort of interesting way that uh, I could be very performative, but not have to create too much space of having her voice take up room. Because this was also this whole other question of what it means to show up as an American Jew in the context of these coalitions around immigrants' rights.
0: I want to go back to something that you explicitly referred to, but I think it's so interesting because it's a little bit about art in the age of Instagram. And like you were saying, art in a time where art needs to evolve quickly in order to be as relevant as it can be. I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about that process. I was fascinated to hear you talk about, and I also saw it in some of the films, that like some of the earlier ones are more campy and uh, they have klezmer music like you're talking about and they're fun. And then the more recent ones are like very serious, kind of dramatic, I guess. And um I'm just curious like how that happens artistically. Is it is it a process of of almost like evolution where you're getting the feedback from the audience and you're you're t- going in more and more in that direction or how does that evolve over time?
2: Originally because the project became something on Instagram, I was always thinking about quick attention span, like how do I keep the viewer interested? And so it's like beat by beat actions and very short segments. I also was thinking about silent film and Yiddish performance and how both of those performance lineages depend on Physical movement and really over-expression of the face. I mean, with y- the Yiddish theater, the over-expression is just sort of a Jewish shtick, but with silent film, obviously there's no words. So there's this over hyperbole to the action and to the expression. And humor is also a very strong Jewish theme for dealing with total tragedy. But I think as the project evolved, there there was this way that other people began to take her more seriously. So I had to. And certainly bringing her into real life contexts like the protest, forced me to contend with that. What did it mean that I was creating this visual spectacle that the subject of the visual spectacle had a deep impact on people's lives? So to give you an example, Golem showed up to a protest outside of Adelanto, the ICE detention center, and so there's a way in which, you, you know, I couldn't engage with that issue without thinking seriously. And also there's this whole other element to it where Golem herself, and of course I'm speaking about my own character, myself performing as a character in the third person, but that's what's so wonderful about this metaphor of the Golem, that there's this distance that I can have between her and my, myself. Um, Golem, I began to relate to her differently as like, oh, she's revealing something to me. There's an artist's impulse. You have this desire to make something. Then there's the actual process, which requires slowing down, thinking through, making. And then there's the presentation of it. And then there's the response from the audience. So all of those things come into play. And it was like she was a, a more direct channel by which I could understand how other people were perceiving her. And it was almost as if, and it continues to be, she's sort of relaying back to me information about how to rethink the way that I present her. You know, in some ways, as I'm saying this, it sounds really silly, but that's sort of the magic of the process of working with a golem.
0: When you talk about that you're learning, that she's teaching you, et cetera, et cetera, like when does that happen? in the process? Like, do you feel like that's happening, like when you're in some way instantiating Golem, either in a video or at a protest? While that's happening, you're learning for the next iteration? Or does it tend to happen when you're working on the next iteration and somehow you you have an insight? And the reason I'm asking that is partly just out of curiosity, because I'm always curious, like, how does art happen? But also because we have for a long time been encouraging our listeners to engage with Judaism as a form of art making. And Mm. like when you're reimagining Passover this year, there's also next year's Passover, or we're talking about the Shemitah year this year, but we're thinking all along that in seven years, another Shemitah is coming and what is happening during the six years getting ready for the next Shemitah. So I'm wondering, like, when is the moment that Really, that next iteration speaks to you, or how do you bring that speaking about?
2: That's a beautiful question because it's also a question about the concept of time. And I definitely think about Golem as being a futurist. She she knows she comes from the past, she's in the present, but she's reimagining the future. And I only recently, since attending the first Jewish psychedelic summit, realized that Golem is a a Jewish psychedelic experience. I mean, in, in Kabbalistic text, it's imagined as an ecstatic state. So I understood that. But when I first started embodying the golem, I really had this sense that I was channeling my grandparents. And I say this because I was treating this as some kind of Jewish mystical act. Dressing up as a golem. And then I had to think about if she doesn't speak, I have to depend on these mannerisms, these features. And so it immediately brought to mind my grandparents, their expressions, their um, mannerisms. And so that's where I began to understand that, that actually through this character, I was enriching and reconnecting with an ancestral past. And there's something also to it being a non verbal a pre-linguistic almost character like the that centering myself in the physicality of this character which happens very easily when you put on a mask right there's a lot of uh writing that's about what a mask does or really feeling her as the spirit and i should say here that when i i have come to realize that golem is a sort of spirit but traditionally the golem is not considered a spirit, right? It's almost referred to as like a dumb soulless creature. And that's too where I understood that reshaping and revitalizing what the golem mythology could be feels really important. This idea that there are so many golems out there right now, as Lex mentioned, is because we need like we need these characters that can be visions for repair, visions for protection visions, possibilities for something better. And particularly in a time of Instagram and TikTok, where like we're constantly presented with visual information, how do we come to see a figure that goes beyond the conditions of the present and reimagine something for the future? And of course, takes all this knowledge from the past. And wow, these are just some of the ways that I Experience this character.
1: So during this shemitah year, I've I've got all sorts of like personal practices I'm trying out, and I've got sort of communal things I'm trying to be part of, and all that. One thing I've been sitting with is my own approach to the world as a pantheist. I've been working on like saying that publicly more. Um, I've thought of myself as a pantheist. What I mean by that is like on the on the God spectrum, I'm not. Really, a monotheist who thinks there's something separate from me called God that I relate to. I believe in a conception of God that I and all matter are part of. Why am I saying that right now in our Golem conversation? To me, what a Golem is is a powerful—not even metaphor. It's—I actually don't think it's a metaphor. I think it's a truth, um, an emmet, if you will. Uh, but like, it's a being that is made up of earth, of clay it is a living being that is made up of matter that we think of as not human or not living it like like it it sends the message through its existence of ah you thought this was just a mound of clay but boom you said some words and it's a human and like for somebody like me who actually like i think that a deficit in our world is that we as human beings think we are super separate from everything else we think we're super different we think we're not animals we think we're not of the earth. And then we screw everything up because we mess with the planet that we think is separate from us, but actually it is us. And the golem, it's like, hello, here's a thing that is not a thing. It is a living creature that is forged by stuff that we thought wasn't living, but it's soil. It's literally where life comes from. So of course it's living. So this, this is not so much a question, but like I want to get it. Like the golem is, is a deep state. It's not just like funky, cool monster protector. Like it's also that. I love that it's just like a fun, irreverent way to get it, cool stories and whatever. But like there's a reason from my perspective that somebody like you would come along and tie it to, you know, climate change. In in the way that you have recently, so less a question than a comment. In the way that one says at the at the book talk, not a question, a comment. But like, <laughs> do you have reflections on? Oh said yeah, comment?
2: that is so beautiful. I mean, immediately, I'm thinking about this book, David Abrams, The Spell of the Sensuous. The book's thesis is that before language was developed, humans had this sensuous relationship to to the more than human world. He phrased that term. And that it was only through the advent of the Hebrew alphabet, actually, that we began to shift our consciousness around and create difference between us and the more than human world. And so I actually read that book early on in the making of this project and understood exactly what you're saying, that this earthly substance that also forms into like a humanoid could be this means through which we can speak to like our connection back to the earth because she didn't speak and she doesn't speak it is a sensuous relationship and through her actions you can feel that she is she understands that she is made of the same thing as the mud itself um and to that end another big influence not just to name books but these these thinkers have been really helpful in me framing what this project is about is uh, Rabbi David Seidenberg's book, and Ecology, which is so much. Um... Who we had on
1: the show a little <laughs> while back.
2: Oh, that's fantastic. Oh, great. Um, yeah. and and so conceiving ourselves in God's image and and everything else in God's image and the and the oneness that that the reverberation of that concept. but so so I had been thinking, you know, with this idea of Golem as the mud, and of the earth, and also Golem as a guide, as a way to kind of show this sensuous understanding relationship that she has to the more than human world. How could I ground that in really specific instances of climate catastrophe? And living in California, it became quite obvious that the wildfires is this ongoing seasonal event that every year worsens. And incidentally, at the same time, I had given a presentation about the Golem at this research station in Tahoe National Forest that's run by UC Berkeley called Sagehen. The managers at Sagehen had developed this, really, this coalition of scientists and researchers, and uh, firefighters, and the U.S. Forest Service. All these people involved in advocating for prescribed burns as a way to manage the wildfires. And there's a whole history there, which basically it really starts with the Spanish colonizers who saw that the indigenous peoples of uh, America had been uh, using cultural fire, fire as a means to manage the forests. So this whole concept of the forest as a wilderness is totally an illusion. And that there is a way that fire is a regenerative tool to clean out the fuel bed at the bottom of the forest and create new growth. But the Spanish colonizers were the first to suppress fire amongst the indigenous communities. And then the U.S. Forest Service came along by the 19th century, early 20th century had established this policy that all fire be suppressed. And in that, in addition to the rise of climate, temperatures, the fire suppression has led to this buildup of fuel on the grounds of the forest. And that's why we have these megafires. So at Sagehead, uh, they're advocating for prescribed burns as a, as a progressive wildfire policy. And they invited artists and filmmakers to get their basic wildland firefighter training. So it was actually in October 2019, I started taking these online courses. And while I was taking the courses that are, you know, really basic courses about what wildfires are and what what your terminology is around wildfires how, and the kind of situational awareness that a wild land firefighter has to have. While that was happening, there were, fire, there were fires um, surrounding Los Angeles and, you know, there were days where you couldn't be outside. So there was like this really pressing sense like, oh, wow, what I'm learning right now, it's actually as just a citizen is giving me more information. So I felt really empowered by that. And then I went up to Seichen and did a day of training with a fire boss from the U.S. Forest Service. So after I did that training, I reenacted it as Golem dressed as a wildland firefighter amongst these ashes. And I realized that somehow she could be a kind of advocate for prescribed burns. Now, I want to say here, it, it seems so obvious when you learn what controlled burns are, like, oh, why don't we have those? And also, like, the indigenous forebearers of the land knew that this was the way to manage the land. And yet, you know, this is where we're at it. in the climate catastrophe, it's like reached such a level of absurdity that we just can't even see the basics of what that requires. And one of the things that requires is a cultural shift in understanding that not all fire is bad. So as I began to think about the Golems relationship with fire, I was really moved by thinking about a Jewish relationship to fire, and fire often being a symbol of hope, and fire very much being a part of so many of our rituals and in that sense uh i was driven to see Golam as this kind of spiritual fire practitioner to bridge this gap between an understanding of what is progressive wildfire management how we can be better stewards of this land that is not our own and then also how this spiritual aspect of atonement and acknowledgement is sort of the basic starting point for repair. And as this relates to the Shemitah year, what what another powerful ritual and tradition to understand that already established within Jewish law and practice is a notion that the land needs rest and that the land also does not belong to us.
1: I'm curious to talk about not just the US creator side but the people that are engaging with you or with Golem to the extent that's you to the extent that's not. Um so there's the current exhibition that's being housed in like a Jewish museum. But uh, correct me if I'm wrong, my sense is that you've done all sorts of – that your golem work has manifested in many contexts that are not just Jews, and whether that's at public-facing protests where it's, you know, never in action, which is a Jewish group, but there's also folks who aren't Jewish there a lot of the time. Um, and I guess I'm curious, like, I also I, – I've, I've got this love for the golem, and I did a, a golem performance once as part of a Purim event. And it was a Purim event that – was actually not all Jews in attendance. It wasn't at a synagogue. It was at a bar slash performance space. And there were a lot of Jews there, but it wasn't only Jews there. And Golem, I think, like part of why I did the Golem performance as opposed to whatever else I might have done as part of this performance, because like, ah, that's a beautiful piece of Jewish tradition that will speak to Jews and is relatable and engaging and enriching for people who aren't Jewish. And so I'd love to hear like, are most of the people that are checking out what's going on with the contemporary Jewish Museum, are they like, are they mostly Jews? Are there folks who aren't Jews? Like have you gotten feedback from people for whom this is their first time ever learning about the golem? Like, what is this sort of communicating to the people engaging with it to the extent that you can tell?
2: Yeah. Well, so there's this way in which I engage with individuals when I'm first presenting my work, where I ask them, Do you know about the legend of the golem? Do you know what a golem is? And any guess what number one response is to what a golem is? What the reference Pokemon. point might be? Oh, no, not Pokemon. Pokemon might be second. That was
1: my first context. Yeah. There's a there's a Pokemon named Golem. Yeah.
2: Right, right. I've seen that. Uh, no, Lord of the Rings.
1: Oh, Smeagol. Uh, yeah. So that's yeah. kind
2: of an entryway. And yes, golems are also popular in Pokemon and video games. Then when you tell the golem story in a really, you know, elevator pitch kind of way... It resonates it also the Golem mythology predates the Frankenstein story, and there's a lot of similarities there. and then there is a lot of recognition, or at least in art circles around the Golem being a way to talk about AI. From there, I think it's very expansive for me to think about the more the deeper I've gone in this project and the more I'm identified as an artist dealing with Jewish concepts or a Jewish artist depends on who's presenting me. (laughs) I think that the way in which American Jewish identity has been politicized from so many standpoints, I have had individuals and institutions approach me as a sort of voice of an American Jewish artist. Um, There are also ways that the project resonates amongst artists and art audiences who are interested in mythology and magic and ancestral practices. For me, that's also very much a world that I'm interested in. So there's a lot of work being done by Indigenous artists, Black artists, queer artists, and the intersections of all those identities that has to do with calling on ancestors, bringing into the art world and specifically the performance art world, ritual practice, and really spiritual life and what that means. So the golem legend can add to those mythologies. Uh, There there is a way that non-Jewish artists approach me with so much fascination around those subjects. Uh, And then I'll say, I'm very excited by a revitalization of Jewish practice that I think is coming through in so many arenas within Jewish life. It, you know, isn't just stemming from artists, and I'm so grateful to be a part of those communities.
0: What's at stake in that question of whether somebody's a Jewish artist or an artist who uses a Jewish context, or I don't remember the exact terminology that you used, but it it seems like. There's a need, in my opinion, there's a need for a more significant art movement within the Jewish project, right? Because I, I think that art is something that pushes forward society. And if you don't have a world of art within the Jewish culture that understands itself to be working in that more limited space of, of let's say, Jewish society, then I feel like Jewish society is missing out on a very important force for culture change and culture growth. If you have Jewish people who are artists, who are working out in the wider society, using Jewish themes perhaps in significant ways, then you are getting something else, which is the application of Jewish ideas into much broader the much broader world, which is also very important. So, you know, I, I think it's important to have both, and maybe there are other categories that I haven't laid out here, but it feels almost like society doesn't so much welcome art playing that role of a a kind of a goat. I mean, I suppose it's like the idea of why everyone always hates the prophets in the Bible. It's like, you don't want to hear the person saying you're doing it badly, or you're doing it in a way that's not meeting your own potential. And yet, I think we need that just like we need prophets. So how do you personally... Struggle with that question of where you want to situate yourself and why do you choose to situate yourself in one way versus another?
2: The first thing that came up at the beginning of your question was something I haven't articulated yet is to actually be more specific about my Jewish identification as an Ashkenazi Jew. And one of the reasons I thought of that immediately is because the way in which you're using in specifying or doing an adjective or saying I'm an artist who's Jewish, or I'm a Jewish artist, or I'm an artist who speaks to Jewish subjects. I came of age in art school and as an art educator in a way where I would distance and suppress my Jewishness in my work. And there's actually historical precedent for that amongst American Jews. Some would say that art critics like Clement Greenberg and Harold Rosenberg would intentionally promote modernism and this idea of the non objective art and art like Mark Rothko, deeply Jewish artist, as not being overtly Jewish to assimilate into white elite culture. And when I first started. Reading about that and thinking about that concept because Clement Greenberg and Harold Rosberg and all these Jewish names played such a big role in modern art and play a significant role in the teaching of art history and contemporary art. I also came of age in the era of identity politics within art. And so the question of the role of American Jews within the art world was important and their has been a lot of early feminist Jewish artists, Jewish women artists um, and Jewish performance artists where their Jewishness isn't obvious to non-Jews, but ends up being very obvious to Jews. So, So I always, again, understood this lineage that I connected to, but I could never quite articulate it in my own work until this Golem Project. And I think, you know, the shift came at the advent of Trump's presidency. And that also seemed important because at the same time, on a personal level, I was having to contend with my whiteness in a way that I hadn't understood previously because I grew up with such a strong identity as a Jew. It was like that mentality of being oppressed. I overlooked the privilege of growing up white. And that began to inform the project. So now when I think about how does this project resonate beyond or in different worlds, whether it's the Jewish art world, the Jewish world, the art world, to me, there's that lineage that has to do with diasporic Judaism, assimilation into white cultures, American Jews, and then how that gets expressed creatively. And I I know I sort of jumped a lot of histories and points there, but I guess that question has like this deep resonance for me because it feels important to me to be connecting those dots historically to understand where I fit in and why I would want this project to resonate in multiple worlds.
1: We've been talking on the show about the the distinction between a text or art or something being torah and being midrash so i'm not going to define those words in the traditional sense but in the sense that i'm using it it is very common and not particularly controversial for people to talk about jewish fiction or jewish art etc as being midrash as being mm. new takes on jewish material on judaism their own riffs On sort of the tradition what I find to be less common and more controversial or I don't know if it's controversial I just don't think people are saying it very much is the idea that Jewish art let's take Rothko or let's take your work let's take any of this Jewish fiction for people to actually say this is Torah this is as essential in the essence sense like this is as central to what we are or at least what we could potentially be as the stuff that makes up the five books of Moses, the prophets, the writings. And I think when you say that even to people that are pretty progressive, even to people that are pretty rebellious and ready to play around with Jewish material to create like I think there's a resistance there. There's like wait, well, yeah, we can play around but like it's it's not the same status. We're, we we feel we have this humility I mean, humility is the nice way to put it, or lack of courage is the less charitable way to put it. Like, we have this inability to say, like, your rendition of the golem is on equal footing with the story of the Maharal of Prague, the classic. And that's what's funny about this is that's not even Torah, right? Like, that's not even officially in the canon. But that's sort of like the accepted notion of the golem. Most people start there. And so I guess I just wanted to ask you, like, how would you relate to that question of art in fact, being Torah, would you would you push back on me? Would you be like, slow your Rolex? Lex? I agree that there's a contribution to be made here, but like we need some boundaries. Or would you co-sign and say, like, let's conceptualize art in its contemporary manifestations as actually being of a sacred status like Torah?
2: My heart wants to say yes. My mind is saying no. <laughs> And I'm taken by both the description of that position being one of humility and then also a lack of courage. Being in a constant state of the student and of learning Judaism, I in no way can imagine that a, a project like my Golam could have the stature or meaning of Torah Midrash. And I understand that it's an offering for an entry point into those texts. Certainly, on a personal level, it has been, but also in conversation and in relation. And when I think about the most recent project that I created, Prayer for Burnt Forests, it certainly has the most spiritual resonance and it also functions as an actual prayer. So I co-wrote a prayer with a rabbi, and then we made a film Not by we, I had many collaborators who helped me turn it into a film in which Golem is traversing the landscape of a uh, burnt forest. To that end, I have come to understand how the prayer has a deep resonance and is an extension of Jewish texts that came before. And I'll give you an example of how that came to life for me recently, Uh, I was in Shasta Trinity Forest on a backpacking trip with Wilderness Torah. During this five-day camping trip, there were two instances where bringing out the prayer for burnt forest felt necessary and resonant. And the first was on the first day as we were hiking in, there was smoke from the Dixie Fire that was clouding the air, and we were concerned about the air quality. Then on our uh, second to last day, there was this sudden billowing smoke. And at the time, we didn't know exactly what it was, but it turned out that there was a small wildfire that had broken out 20 to 30 miles away from us. The best decision we had to make at that point was to hike out early. And at one point during the hike where the clouds are, smoke is continuing to fog the sky and there's this orange glow that resonates when the smoke is in front of the sun. It's very eerie and beautiful at the same time. We also read the prayer at that moment. So in that sense, we're dealing with this, what is now becoming the new normal, at least in the West Coast of wildfires every season, you you really can't go camping or hiking without confronting it. And so how do we bring Torah into those experiences and prayer? And I do feel like this prayer, which I co-wrote with Rabbi Zach Fredman, becomes this extension of Torah.
0: As you were talking earlier, much earlier in our conversation, I feel like you alluded to something about Masks and what we know, or what we ought to know about masks. And this episode is going to be on long before Purim, but I'm wondering if maybe there's something that can be spoken about in this episode that would help people approach the holiday of Purim in a different way than they usually do. And I've always felt that the idea, like why, why do we wear masks on Purim? That nobody even asks that question. It's just like, that's what we do, and it's fun, and it's like Halloween, and why do we mask on Halloween? That's a whole nother question. But um, you know, we do, and that's what we do, and it's fun. And don't think about it too much. But I feel like there's gotta be more to it than that. And I've been trying to scratch at this question for a long time, but I'm no expert, so I'm excited to talk to you about like, what is the point of, of a mask?
2: the potential for masks being a way to hide one's identity and to perform acts of violence because of the anonymity of that is is there. But on the other end of things, there's this idea of becoming another person when you put on a mask. And there's this really playful and clownish aspect of it. And there's so many ways that this has been written about. I think for me, it became a way to bring out a more spiritual version of myself that maybe is like a little hidden and a little shy and embarrassed sometimes to speak to this more divine energy that can that we can access and feel. So I I understand that as part of a tradition and it, of Purim and also the idea of like the ecstatic state, which is encouraged. To sort of like reach this state where you can't acknowledge the difference between Haman and the other characters this is this also playful way of losing one's ego, you know, through dressing up and becoming this other character. There's also this connection to the Purim spiel because as I was doing research around Yiddish theater, it really began with the Purim spiel. And so that was such a cool way. I grew up with Purim Spiels. And so, and Spiel, by the way, is a play. So, to understand that this is something deep within um, Jewish tradition to become another character, to reimagine oneself through costuming and through masking, we can lose a sense of ourselves and our attachment to our own identity and ego and really fully embody and become this other character, this other identity and way of being and seeing the world.
1: So, okay, so first I have a thought on the masks piece. First, I wanna note like, Dan, when when you brought up masks and then Julie, when, when you talked about masks so beautifully, I was initially like confused because masks has so thoroughly lived in my head as like a COVID related thing. It actually like, took <laughs> me a second to calibrate, oh, we're talking about masks as the thing you wear to enter into a care. Like it it actually was a brief moment of like masks. Oh, we're talking about masks in the way of Purim not associated with COVID. I like was still in, oh, like the health stuff. What I think is cool about masks, even in the context where they are being worn for health safety reasons that we're not thrilled about, where we're in a world where people are dying, like Masks are relational by definition. Like if you're wearing a mask in both of the contexts, like you're wearing a mask on Purim because others are perceiving you in it. There's no, like one doesn't, I mean, you could wear a mask by yourself, but it's not really doing the work of maskness if you're wearing it alone, it has to be observed. And so I'm just like sticky noting that masks are really profound because they push us to this collectivist place to, to, to be beyond ourselves. The piece I wanted to ask you, and if you have more thoughts on, on that piece, Julie, please, please um, bring them. But the, the closing question I had was just basically like, w- what's next? Because I know your your exhibition at the Contemporary Jewish Museum, it's been there since, I think, March. I mean, it's closing out, but it's still got a nice run ahead. I'm curious what's coming up and if folks who are listening have ways that they can engage with your work, whether it's this particular Golem project or or future pieces however relevant to Judaism.
2: We are hosting a conversation at the Contemporary Jewish Museum in San Francisco in November. I'm going to moderate the, it's a panel discussion that is going to be about the cultural and spiritual aspects of wildfire policy. And I've invited Rabbi Zelig from Wilderness Torah And Brandon Smith, who is the director of this program that I actually work for called the Forestry and Fire Protection Program. And it is a program for formerly incarcerated firefighters to transition into firefighting jobs after prison. And this is a whole nother thing, Um, understanding the, the wider experience of who are the individuals who are fighting these fires, and how do we acknowledge the work that they do and elevate their role? So there's an opportunity to attend the panel. Additionally, uh, you can follow my golem on Instagram. My golem is here, and that's where I'll be posting any future events or exhibitions. And long term, the project that I'm going to continue to work on that I will constantly be needing support for is i am developing a film project about something you mentioned before lex which is this idea that the golem is of the earth and trying to ground the legend within this relationship ground yes ground nice (laughs) ground the legend in this way so that we can actually begin to understand that the Gola mythology can be uh, almost like a practice of teshuva, of how we come back to our relationship with the earth and do the repair. I mean, this also is in alignment with the, the idea of Shemitah, um, that we've gone so far from uh, a, a right relationship with the with the earth to being good guests and stewards and Uh, I really believe that the golem has this potential to re-guide us and re-ground us and reorient us towards that right relationship.
1: Thank you so much, Julie, for joining us. This has been a fantastic conversation.
2: Thank you so much, Lex and Dan. I so appreciate having the opportunity to talk with you.
1: And thank you so much to all of you out there for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation and we hope that you'll tune in again in the future. We want to remind you that there is an awesome event coming up featuring Julie Weitz's work and featuring some other panelists on November 18th at the Contemporary Jewish Museum. You can find out more about it in the show notes on our website, and you can sign up there. Uh, we definitely encourage you to check it out. And uh, we also encourage you at the end of every episode, and this one included, We encourage you to be in touch with us, and we greatly appreciate your questions, your comments, your thoughts. You can be in touch in a number of ways. First, there are our social media handles, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. All of our handles are Judaism Unbound. Second, there's our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And last but not least, there are our email addresses, dan at JudaismUnbound.com or lex at JudaismUnbound.com. Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Ashman Family JCC in Palo Alto, California whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Ashman Family JCC empowers you to experience Jewish paths toward a life of joy, purpose, and meaning through innovative Jewish learning and wellness programs, community building, and initiatives to develop the next generation of Jewish leaders. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. So thank you so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.